Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, I am super, super excited for this week. We are talking to Lush lead singer and guitarist Mickey Berenyi. So Lush form in the mid 80s in England. Uh, they're sort of stalwarts of the kind of British alternative slash shoegazer scene. Her and Emma Anderson put this band, band together. The early stuff, their first EPs and their first couple of albums are produced by Robin Guthrie which you know we love him from the Cocteau Twins. In fact, this is my favorite uh, Lush song right here, Sweetness and Light. He did this. Well, their third album has Lady Killer on it. It's not a Robin production, and it becomes probably their biggest one. Around the same time, they joined the second tour of Lollapalooza, and there are amazing stories uh, attached to that one as well. Here's the main reason why Mickey is here. Last year, she published her memoir called Fingers Crossed. And I'm not just saying this, it is the best rock memoir slash autobio that I have ever read. And I read a lot of them, you probably do too. We love rock memoirs, we love rock docs. I'm telling you, Mickey's is probably the best I've ever read. Her family is unbelievable. She grows up in the UK, her dad is Hungarian, her mom is Japanese, they get divorced shortly after he, she comes around and her mom becomes a prominent Hollywood actress and moves to Hollywood. And her dad remains a freelance writer in the UK. And so her mom is like living it up in Hollywood, in the Hollywood lifestyle. And her dad is basically living in squalor in the UK. And she goes back and forth between these two families. And it is amazing the amount of sort of dysfunction that she had to overcome in order to be where she is today. Her and Emma Anderson formed Lush in the mid 80s. She really finds her tribe that way. It lasts for a little while and then it, go, it ends as well. Um, I don't know, infighting, the drummer commits suicide unfortunately. Uh, it just becomes played out, the girls aren't getting along anymore. So all of this is detailed in this book. In fact, one of the other best parts of this book is their experience in the second Lollapalooza tour. Uh, I Now, something I learned at, while talking with Mickey is that this book has not actually even come out in the States, which I didn't realize because I feel like I've been seeing a lot of press and promotion for it for years. But I guess it's not available in the States, but I'm, I'm telling you, it is so, so good. Do what you have to do to get your hands on it. I mean, I'm sure Amazon will send it to you if you buy it. So do what you gotta do. Uh, it's now out in paperback. Hopefully it comes to the States early next calendar year. But I think after this incredibly uh, revealing conversation, you're gonna wanna get your hands on that book sooner rather than later, okay? Anyway, I love her, I love this conversation. Oh, she's now in a new band called Parashka, which is also really excellent. And we kind of kick off the conversation talking about that. I don't remember where in England she was calling from, but it's somewhere in England, probably London. Um, okay, first and foremost, I want to I want to ask you because you have put, posted a few pictures recently of you hanging out with Patrick Fitzgerald, and uh, Patrick's been on here. I love him; he's such a sweet man, and his music is so good. And I wondered, I it just I'm I think we all believe that ro that rock stars our friends and hang out with each other, but seeing these pictures just made it real. So how do you and 
Patrick, you know, I'm sure I know how you know each other, but how are you guys still buddies and hang out and stuff like that? I mean, to be honest, I I got to know Patrick because our front of house sound man, Pete Bartlett, who also produced Love Life, um, he was their sound man. Uh, he was the Kitchens of Distinction sound man, and he recorded one of their albums. So we always had Pete as this connection. Uh-huh. And after Kitchens broke up, um, I did a... A uh, little thing on on Patrick's album. I think it was called Fruit. Um, yeah, he's got several Stephen Hero and Overkill Art and all these other side projects. Yeah, but it was it was not long after like the band split up that I did that with him. That was when he was still living in Vauxhall. But then I kind of lost touch with him. You know, I mean, I to be fair, I think after Life Split, I lost touch with a lot of people because I mm. kind of sort of just needed to get away but um basically I hadn't seen Patrick in years and years and years and then I did a book event in um Manchester last November and he turned up and so uh it was like oh my god you know blah 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 and then we just reconnected and so I've been to stay with him a few times Mm -hmm. and we've had a great time he makes a monster fucking sourdough loaf i can tell you that really yeah he sent us on our way because we were going up to scotland and we so we stayed at patrick's just to break the journey because it's a really long drive and Uh um he sent us on our way with a homemade focaccia so there you go that's he's a fine fine host (laughs) yes i'm not surprised i love him a lot he's a good man he was on here a few years ago and i really loved him a lot okay i want to we're going to get into the book and everything. Can we talk about Parashka for a second? Because sure. I think they're great. Am I saying it right? Parashka? What is that? Yeah. Piroshka. Well, um, Piroshka is a Hungarian word. I mean, it's a name. So it's quite an old fashioned woman's name. And it's also um, Little Red Riding Hood. So Little oh. Red Riding Hood in Hungarian is Piroshka Ishafarkosh, so Piroshka and the wolf. And okay. um the the genesis of it really is is that when we formed, like I hadn't really looked up band names since we started Lush. And in the interim period, I'm gonna blame the internet for this and <laughs> band camp and whatever. Every bloody name you think of has been taken. Every single one, right? This is why you get these stupid names like car park, whatever. <laughs> right. you, you know, two words that don't belong together because everything else has been taken. Yeah. And yeah. I even looked at all the Japanese ones. I thought, oh, well, there's loads of Japanese things all taken. All the ones that sound kind of fun in English right. taken. So I kind of uh, resorted to Hungarian. And even that is um, tricky because everyone thinks it's piroshki which is a mm. kind of Polish food, I think. I was going to say, isn't that, like, yeah, yeah. I think I've had a yeah. Piroshki. <laughs> yeah, and also I haven't spelt it properly because I, it's actually like the Hungarian is the sh sound is just mm. S. But mm. I knew if I just put, if I wrote it properly, everyone would be saying Piroska. Uh-huh. They would think that we're some kind of ska band or something. So, <laughs> so I just, whatever. it's very convoluted. But um, It's great yeah. though. It, uh, I 
are, I mean, are you able to, is this just like a fun hobby thing at this point to put out a, an occasional project or do you guys go actually go out and play shows? Is this like taking up your life like Lush might have in a way? Well, I mean, to be honest, Piroshka was kind of born out of the end of the Lush reunion because, um, you know, I was it was clear that in that last few months that it was it would that it was going to be the end of that. And funny enough, I was the one who was the most reluctant to do the unit reunion. Mm. And I hadn't been doing music in the interim period at all. And in those last sort of weeks of touring, it was actually Justin who was saying, you know, you really should do something else after this. You know, you've really enjoyed it. And I had really enjoyed it. I'd surprised myself, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But God, I hadn't even realized how much I missed this when it wasn't in my life. So he was the one who, you know, he was going, oh, you should be, do a solo thing. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not interested in a solo stuff. It's just not my thing. And then that's how, you know, I said, well, listen, if you want to do something together and then, you know, Mick Conroy from Modern English was also playing the last Lush gig, mm -hmm. which was in Manchester. So he was already there. Um, so we and we'd done a load of rehearsing for that one gig, just the three of us, and we had a really good laugh actually. So that seemed to make sense. And then obviously, Moose, I live with Bucking Moose, and I was sure, going, like, Well, it does seem a bit crazy. You're sitting right here, <laughs> you know. Um, it was quite kind of, and we just had a crack at writing a few songs, so we were very quiet about it, you know. I didn't <clears> want to announce anything until we actually had something of substance and when I got you know I actually sent we did a kind of load of demos and when I got in touch with Simon Raymond at Bella Union I only, I was only asking him in a kind of like what do you think we can do with these and he just said well I'll put them out and mm -hmm. I was like seriously so we had no expectations we were just seeing we were just doing it purely for the enjoyment and mm. so it just kind of you know developed into something and and I think now, you know, I mean, because I was writing the book, you know, there was COVID, there was the book. And I think also Mick moved to America. He got married and moved to America. So there was another whole kind of different mm. setup going on. And I think Justin really wanted to be in a band where, you know, he lives in St. Leonard's. He doesn't live in London and he wants to be in a band where he can rehearse every week, yeah, which was yeah. impossible with us. So he's formed Air Called. Okay. And because I was doing the book, I you know, I'd get asked to do these book events and they'd say, oh, can you do some music with it? Thinking that I'm going to kind of rock up with an acoustic guitar yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, and I tried it once and I thought, it's just so unpleasant <laughs> for me and for everybody here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do this That's again. Funny. So I thought if I do it, I need like a, at least a sort of small setup with a band. Yeah. Um, and so we were just doing a few love songs to go with the book events. But then we got asked to do like a support with a wedding present. And then we got asked oh. to do a gang of four tour. So now we're thinking, OK, well, we'll start writing songs then. And, and yeah, we're going to do an album. So I quite like it when things organically grow out yes. of things rather than some battle plan, yes. you know, to take yes. over the world. Expe think, keeps expectations in check. But then know? you're just doing it because you're enjoying it. Yeah, you know, good point. Mm -hmm. You're not disappointed that you haven't hit some milestone. Yeah. It's just, you know what? We put out two Poroshka albums. They were brilliant. I really enjoyed making them. 
and you know i'll put out a mickey Bereni trio album now i could go back to Proshka, who knows you know but i hey. like the open-ended nature of it that like more of a collective because actually yeah. the uh, ollie who's in air called with justin is also in my band <laughs> wow there's a lot going on now yeah, i didn't know so about the mickey Bereni uh uh trio album yeah so well it doesn't exist yet okay oh, 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 we've got okay. two songs so far that okay. we've kind of really put together but that's your new musical set. focus is the trio but that's that's where we're heading yeah because it's just i, I tell you what there's a real advantage to having quite a nimble setup because it's mm. just the three of us and a laptop with the backing mm -hmm. like the, you know the kind of percussion on it and like i say we only did it because that was easy to do for book events but I've realized since that probably part of why we were asked to do the Gang of Four tour is because having a support band that doesn't have like six members in it and a drum kit and mm -hmm, two keyboards mm -hmm. and God knows what, suddenly it's like it's a bit yeah. more welcoming. <laughs> yes. yes, I could see that. I love the song Hastings, 1973. Did you write that? What's mm. the story of that? No, so that's one of Lucy's. Okay. And um, I think the, the, I mean, lyrically, it was about him going to visit Hastings when he was a kid with his mum. And, um, you know, his mother died. I'm trying to remember when. It wasn't, I mean, it was several years ago now, but I think it was almost a little kind of peon to her, you know. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. um it was uh yeah i think a lot of moose's stuff on the album was quite you know about the people that he loves you know uh -huh. family and different people yeah so yeah it's great what about everlastingly yours on the first album
I love that song, and it's. I noticed on Spotify, it's been uh, streamed over a million times. Or is it? Yeah, yeah. And everything else is in the tens of thousands. So I wondered if that song. Do I not know? Is that song on like a movie soundtrack somewhere, or I, on an I advert think or something? So. Oh wow! I mean, it, it was it was the first single off the album, and. I mean, you know, this is the problem. You don't really get singles anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think we got like three radio plays and <laughs> it did, I, I thought it hadn't done anything. So I'm amazed right. that it's done like a million streams. Yeah. Yeah. I was just noticing that. But, I, I thought that was pretty, I thought, did I, maybe this was a bigger deal than I thought. Maybe, I don't know. Oh, I'll tell Moose. He'll be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> that's great okay good well so let's let's talk about the book i um as i mentioned before i i believe it's probably taken over the top spot of my of the best rock autobiography i've ever read and um and a shout out to midge your who used to be at the top of my list of best books and you've overtaken midge your i want you to know his book if i was was also really excellent um I remember when the book came out, not in the U.S. apparently, I didn't realize that part, but um, and I was thinking, well, that's kind of fun. The lead, the lead singer of Lush wrote a book. That, that'll be fun. And then you, it gets all this attention, and you realize, why is the lead singer of Lush getting all this attention for her book? There's a lot of books out there, you know? And then I read it, and I realized why. Because it's an incredible piece of work, not just because of your story, but because you're an excellent writer and you're brutally honest about all kinds of things. It's it's incredible. And I got to say one thing for anyone who's listening. Normally, when I read a rock bio, I don't know about you, but um, the whole beginning part about someone's life before they become a rock star is usually the most boring part of the book. And yours is the best part of the book. I didn't want that part to end because it was so weird. Your family is so weird. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, who approached you to write this book? Well, first of all, thank you for the, the slew of compliments. Sure. That's very <laughs> nice of you. Um, I got approached by a man called Peter Selby, who was setting up an imprint at at Bonnier Books and the imprint is 9-8 and it was going to you know it was going to be a music publishing thing and when he first approached me um I, t I mean I, I honestly I did think it was the most ridiculous idea and I was just like no that's not going to happen uh -huh. and then and then basically I the magazine I was a sub-editor I still am really um I was a sub-editor at a magazine that was then going to fold and then it was COVID and I thought oh bloody hell and I'm you know trying to look for a job with all that going on so I kind of went back to him and said actually I'll tell you what <laughs> I'll tell you what I'll think about it yeah and it kind of went from there and he was great actually because I did you know the, my constant thing was was like listen I'm not a writer who gives a shit about Lush and the singer from Lush? You know, I'm not being funny, but this is not an obvious sell. Right. right. Um, but he was really great. He kind of let me write the book. I'm going to say the book I didn't even know that I wanted to write, really. Wow. wow. So 
so yeah because I do get asked they people do sort of say oh did you write the book and then you had to find a publisher it's like mm -hmm. no I did I didn't even occur to me to do that until mm -hmm. someone approached me and you know he did quite a lot of hand holding my mm -hmm. agent as well I've got an agent so I, between the three the three of us you know there was a lot of me sending pages and kind of sitting there wincing waiting for the damning reply and mm -hmm. actually getting a lot of encouragement no keep going keep going blah 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 but um yeah I was just guessing my way through most of it because wow uh I, well I, I've got a friend Lucy O'Brien who's a music journalist and she actually so I went to her for advice and she said look you just have to st don't get too clever just start at the beginning right? <laughs> and just mm -hmm. and just write it and just put everything in and then worry about what you take out afterwards try yeah. not to self-edit yeah. and uh so that's kind of what I did and I had a lot of you know I've got I'm quite a hoarder so there was a lot of diaries and photo mm -hmm. albums with little annotations and mm -hmm. tour programs and all sorts of stuff, you know. So I had quite a lot of, uh, like a good framework to hang it on. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting experience. Oh, Not man. always easy. Sometimes no. it was really good fun. It was definitely yeah. satisfying. But, Hearing, um, reading some of the stories about your parents, who individually seemed like lovely people who whose parenting was questionable or uh, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, I both love them and I worried about you in relationship to them in a lot of ways. Your poor dad, Ivan. So for anyone who doesn't know, he's a Hungarian, uh, basically like a, uh, uh, like a, like a stringer, like a reporter, uh, an independent writer. What's the word I'm trying to think of? Right. I mean, he. Uh, it's not like I mean, a formal a, job. No, he was. He was basically a freelance journalist. Freelancer. And, that's the word I'm trying to think of. And he would sort of. He would write about. Mm. I mean, I remember him writing about computers. He would write about. He wrote a lot about boxing. He was very into sport. Yeah. But he kind of um, managed to because he spoke a lot of languages, and because you know it was pre-internet. So we would literally get these deliveries of publications from like Russia <laughs> and Germany and Ukraine and Hungary. And he basically kind of just rewrite a lot of the content uh -huh. <laughs> and collate it. So that's why our house was covered in newspaper clippings. Because When was, you said hoarder <laughs> a second ago, I, I, remi I remembered you saying that your house was kind of like that growing up. Oh, yeah. It was like a, yeah, it was like the, a storeroom of, yeah. of, well somewhere very disorganized that's for sure uh -huh, and uh -huh. but yeah that was his job and it kind of took him all over the place but he was very kind of he flew by the seat of his pants if you know what I mean yes. you know he would he was always late for filing uh -huh. copy he would pitch things because he would he would suddenly get like he knew fuck all about computers let me just say okay <laughs> like he would just find like about six articles from foreign uh -huh. magazines go yeah I think I think I've got this uh -huh. <laughs> and he would pitch something and then right. just kind of bang it together and I'd get knocks on my door going what's the thing what's the thing that that is in you know when you plug the computer in a modem <laughs> modem thank you like, you know so yeah yeah um, and uh if i remember so i took some notes as i'm reading the book i finished it a couple of months ago so they're not not everything is totally fresh in my mind anymore <clears throat> but if i remember correctly he missed your birth because he was out 
fooling around with someone else? Well, he he would claim otherwise. Uh -huh. right? I mean, he used to say to me when I when I said that because my mum told me that, and he said bullshit. <laughs> I was there. I was fucking there, and da 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 da. da. And I'm like, uh -huh. okay, but I'm going to go with my mother's account here yeah, yeah because yeah. i suspect that she you know and she had a lot of backup on that you know yeah. she had like yeah 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 all the hungarian friends were coming and they were going where's ivan and she was like i don't know all the nurses were like where's your husband uh -huh. <laughs> you know so yeah i mean yeah and, you know hey it was the time before mobile phones so clear i mean you know the fact that his wife was on the verge of giving birth and he just fucks off to screw some other woman which yeah. is, i'm sorry but very typical ivan and lots of people knew that about him and they still loved him but he was mm -hmm. incorrigible you yeah know, it was that's it sounds that way <laughs> and uh there were it's, there were a couple of different instances where he would drive you two would drive over to someone's house and he'd leave you in the car while he went in and got his rocks off real quick and uh that happened. i cannot tell you how often that happened where i would be sitting on some double yellow line illegally parked oh. with instructions to shoo away any traffic kind of you know people um and always last minute you know always like yeah. you know we jump in the car and it will be like great we're going here and then you go okay i'm just gonna i'm just gonna park here i'm gonna be 10 minutes okay i'm just gonna and i'd be like please please no and he's like come on it's gonna be fine and he'd be gone for like an hour and a half you yeah know? and i'd yeah. be oh i just didn't know this how is crazy and uh okay i i gotta admit making out with your grandma nora freaked me out your your grandma his mom lives in your house with you for the better part of your upbringing and she basically like sexually molests you overly over over and over right she absolutely does and you know i'd I have to sort of clarify it is clear if you read the book i think but you know i'm aware that in this you know um better world that is more well versed with the idea yeah. of sexual abuse and children it's very easy to immediately cast her as a pedophile which which in a way she was but i would make the demarcation that i think nora was um probably demented mm -hmm. by then although it doesn't excuse what she did in earlier life mm -hmm. i think that i just you know to me a pedophile is someone who is predatory over all children yes. and she wasn't like that it was very much you know a psychologist probably knows better about these things but it was totally about the people close to her like she needed to have them entirely there were no boundaries in how she felt that she could possess you and control you and have you in her orbit and would you know I don't know kind of cut you off from everybody else it's kind of so there's probably a psychological condition so it's more that the boundaries you know crossed sexuality yeah, rather yeah. than sexuality was the prime focus right I can see that yeah <clears throat> that makes sense you know not that it makes it much nicer no right? I know but the intention but different, is a slightly different yes it's a it's yeah, it's a thing of itself because she certainly never looked at any of my friends. Right. She certainly never looked at any of my dad's friends. Right. She didn't, you know, hang around kids' playgrounds or 
right. anything like that. It was just right. about us, you yeah. know. Uh, yeah. And an inappropriate expression of affection for you. Um, and then there's, uh, I'm, I wonder how much this messed with you. Did you have to, there's the other story too. I remember you being a little girl and your dad's friend is over and he seems like such a nice guy and you're sitting on his lap and he's got his fingers down your underpants. And, um, do you, do you, did you notice any long-term scars from these kinds of things? Um, yeah, <laughs> if okay. I'm honest, yes. Yeah. Because I think the diff, you know, I can only speak of my own experience and everyone's will be different, but I do think a lot of people will chime with mine in that the problem, you know, one of the major effects of abusing a child is that for that child, the it's about boundaries. And once those boundaries are gone, you don't know what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. Yeah. And so if a, a kind of, you know, if a stranger approaches you, of course that's scary. But if someone familiar to you um, tries that kind of stuff on, you've normalised it already. You mm -hmm. think, oh, well, you know, it feels a bit weird, but maybe this is what, you know. And I'll tell you what, what's illustrative is you know when you become like a teenager and you start to go to other people's houses and you notice yeah. how weird other people's families are <laughs> yes. and it's only at that age you start to notice how weird your own family yeah. is because that's the only time you've had any contrast and I've known people who had parents who were fucking heroin addicts and it wasn't till that they were 14 or so that they realized oh shit so that's yeah. not normal okay yeah. and I think yeah. that that kind of abuse within a family does exactly the same thing you you just don't realize that that's not that's not fine that that's a problem that that needs to be flagged up that person should not be doing that mm -hmm. and alarm bells should be ringing mm -hmm. but you don't go to anyone you don't tell them oh you know sam stuck his hand down my skirt or whatever yeah. because you think yeah. oh well that's that's meant to be private with me and sam sure. and i might get into trouble if i say yeah. that and i think that you know for all you know, children, I think, whether they're abused within the family or not, I think that's always one of the problems. And it does make a lot of people in later life quite promiscuous yeah. because it's that twisted thing, isn't it, of, you know, it's like if you grow up around violence, you're more likely to put up with it and be mm -hmm. a, a woman who is in an abusive relationship because you've already normalised it at a very yeah. young age. And yeah. I think that applies to sexual abuse as well. You think, oh, well, this is how I get people to like me. Or I just, you know, if someone, uh, you know, behaves in that way to me, I just go along with it because it means that they're being nice to me. Yeah. And you don't have those boundaries built in where you feel like, well, <laughs> you know, right. it's just a simple no. And I think it's really interesting that they had to kind of extend the, the statute of limitations, I think, on victims of child abuse because of course you can go for decades without right. realizing that that is actually what was happening not right. least because you feel quite complicit you yeah. do think well i wasn't screaming the house down and, and and phoning the police for help so i must have been going along with it right you know right and then that becomes a, a burden in itself and what part of this am i responsible for absolutely um it, it, the contrast too between the life you're living in the UK with your dad in what sounds like filth in a lot of ways, to be honest, with your mom living in Hollywood and as an actress 
and it is in James Bond movies and Mary DeRay, who's kind of a, you know, also in the Hollywood elite, even though he sounds like kind of a dope, but, uh, and it, what's interesting to me, so you, I mean, you could not have two more polar opposite realities going on, it sounds like. And what I thought was interesting was that it sounded to me, Mickey, like when you were with one, you were longing for the love and the acceptance of the other. You know what I mean? You would, if when, you, when you're with your mom in Hollywood, living it up or whatever, and on yachts and stuff, I miss my dad. I miss the love of my dad. And I miss our little house. And I miss the pack stacks of magazines and then when you're with him you're like oh i miss hollywood and i miss my mom and she hugs me just the way i love it and you know what i mean and i think a lot of that is because you know i've 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 known hmm, i'm trying to think because i need to talk about this without giving away who it is but basically okay. you know i i know someone whose mother when he was growing up was um basically in and out of psychiatric care and ended up committing suicide it was a terrible 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 story and he did say to me once you know it's awful because sometimes when she was in hospital I actually had more freedom mm. and although I I hated that she was ill and I hated being away from her there were benefits mm. you know and as a child I do think that's how you you know mm -hmm that's how you think and uh -huh. so I think that there will you know however much people might say god why didn't you go and live with your mum in Hollywood that sounds way better than being yeah. with your dad I had an awful lot of freedom at my dad's he was yeah. also enormous fun yeah. right and yeah. very very good company yeah. I didn't really get along with Ray and uh -huh. a lot of that is down to him but a lot of it's down to me as well I didn't sure. you know it's a classic kind of step parent you know difficult stuff um so I think you know life could have been simpler if I'd have just gone to live with my mom I think right right but I have but you know simple isn't all isn't always best because I actually right. whenever people criticize my dad which they do and they have a perfect right to because he was a very neglectful parent uh -huh. Uh -huh. I do sort of think that I've known people who this is probably less, I, I don't know if it's less common now, but it, you know, certainly in the kind of 70s when I grew up, a lot of men who, you know, once a couple divorced, a lot of men went on and had fa new families and they just kind of ditched their other mm -hmm. children and their mm -hmm. old families. And you had a lot of women sitting around feeling abandoned and never remarrying and feeling, oh, you know, quite sorry for themselves. And yeah. men who got a, you know, a new wife, new family, they're like, yeah, 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 I'm all happy now. And just really didn't bother with their other children. And the fact that my dad didn't do that and that he did fight for me and he yeah. did stick with me is really important, I think, because yeah. I know people who um, had fathers who abandoned them. And that is, I think, a harder burden mm -hmm. from what I went through, way harder. I think it's much more damaging. Um, yeah. You know, the rejection yeah. of someone who's absolutely meant to love you. And for all the shit that my parents put me through, totally not maliciously, but just because right. they were right. quite selfish, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, they did love me. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing that is a big takeaway from the book is that as as strange and uh, unnatural uh, and, and unique as these two living situations are, you can tell they both love you a lot and uh you're and they make the time and the sacrifices necessary for you 
at the at that age in in their own way you know in their own unique way well yeah i, w- I would say sacrifice is not not a, a big part of either yeah okay yeah okay maybe sacrifice is the wrong word actually yeah <laughs> that's probably true yeah they're both pretty you know, self-centered sacrifice is in the right word good call mickey you're right <laughs> but bless them both you know yeah, and yeah. i think you know they were both people who left their original homes mm-hmm. and you know both had quite disruptive lives themselves you know my dad left hungary in 56 my mum left japan when she was very young mm-hmm. and so i i cut them a lot of slack because you know they they just were in a in quite a disruptive environment themselves yeah. you know and they were in order to escape those environments they had to be the kind of people who were going to like reach out and grab life as it came along now i would point out that there are friends of my mum's who are from the same background and friends of my dad's who are from the same ground who didn't behave like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i get it um okay let's talk about music for a minute uh one of the things that also i came away with in the book was that i didn't it didn't necessarily sound to me like you grew up necessarily wanting to you know be a rock star it wasn't like i've got all these lyrics in me that i've got to get out i i have a guitar and i love it and i can't put it down it felt more like you were a music fan with the fanzine and the going out to clubs and stuff like that and maybe the opportunity came along to just be like i could i'll try that i'll do it you know as opposed to like this lifelong drive am i right Oh, you're totally right. I mean, I remember hearing a, it's probably a very well-known anecdote, but when we signed to Warner Brothers in the in the US, um, I remember, you know, someone from the re- label kind of telling us this anecdote about how, you know, Prince came in with this cassette and, you know, he was this shy kid and he played them this demo and they were like, hey, you know, who's the rest of your band? And he was like, oh, it's just me. And he played uh-huh. all the instruments on this record. And he was incredibly shy and blah, blah, blah. So there was this whole anecdote about it. And I thought, wow, that's so not me. Uh-huh. Like, no, I did not sit there learning 15 different instruments uh-huh. and thinking, you know, having my kind of, um, you know, dream that I was yeah. working towards. I think I was, you know, I... I I mean, as I say, I I was creative in that I did a lot of art and I, you know, wrote a diary and I, you know, it's just quite scattered and, but I didn't have any kind of a plan. And I've always been like that. It always takes a catalyst for me to do, whether it's the book, being Mm -hmm. approached for that, whether it's the band, whether it's Poroshka and Justin Mm -hmm. going, why don't we do this? I always need a catalyst because I don't think... First of all, I don't have the self-confidence mm-hmm. and I'm not even just being humble about that. That's no. an asset. Most of you us know, don't. In order to, yeah, to really believe yeah. in yourself and to really put in the work with that knowledge that you are convinced that you, this will happen one day. I don't yeah. have that, right? Yeah. So it needs to be made fun for me mm-hmm. by the involvement of other people I like. Yeah. So yeah. if I meet like-minded people and they go, let's do a band, you go, sure. Sure. it's not going to fucking get anywhere but we'll have fun while we're trying <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. right right yeah it's but then i mean you you say that and then a song like for love what do you, i think it was 
one of your first singles or something like that. I mean, you wrote that and you sing that and you play guitar on that. And it sounds like a fantastic song that deserves to be played on the radio. And yet you, and I don't want to single out everybody, but you are not a professional musician. It's almost like a happy accident that a, that songs, it sounds like anyway, from an outsider, that songs as good as that just appear. And you just think, wow, do we, what a, what a blessing that Mickey found her talent. And are there songs as good as For Love just, living inside of me and I don't even know because I don't pick up a guitar and sing, you know, that must have been, did, I guess what I'm saying is that quickly did you adapt to being a songwriter and a musician and think I actually have kind of a talent for this. This is pretty good. Uh, I would say that, um, uh, how do I want to frame this? You know, I know that that music and and independent and, and pop music and all of that kind of genre has now been very professionalized. You know, you can yeah. do a degree in it and you can do a master's and you can take courses. And this is the way it is now. And that has produced some amazing musicians. Right. Uh -huh. Don't get me wrong. But I do think it's also created an environment where people think it's a prerequisite. Mm. And I don't think it is. You know, I think that that was the probably the main influence of punk rock is that mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. hey i love all sorts of music by amazing musicians you know blues music and people who who are so skilled at, at their instruments but punk rock allowed people who have exactly what i have which is <clears throat> you know i don't think you can just go in there blind i listen to a lot of music in a way that i also read a lot of books before yeah. i you know i just have over my life so right. writing a book having had 50 years of reading books yeah good point you know means that you've soaked up a lot and being in a band and writing music when you have listened to hours and hours and hours and loved yeah. it yeah i do think that you soak up stuff that you're not even aware of when you're sitting there with a the guitar and you're thinking oh where do I want this melody to go and something mm -hmm. it goes somewhere I mean sometimes you think oh no I know what that is it's it's not that's already been written uh, <laughs> right. but it gives you a language without having yeah. been trained you know yeah. and I think that that you know I'm sure that there are filmmakers who feel the same way they didn't yeah, go probably. to film school they just love film they've seen the greats they know instinctively know yeah. how it can work yeah um and then i think it's just about opportunity really yeah. you're probably right that's true i mean um yeah you're if you love a, a if you love a kind of art 
and immerse yourself in it for so long, who knows what you could create if given the chance, you know, along those lines. I mean, a lot of people I know who went to art college absolutely rebelled against it. All they'll do is slag it off and go, it was shit uh, and whatever. But I think even the mere act of rebelling against it yeah. makes <laughs> you, you know, I think people like Billy Childish or whatever will sit there and talk about having gone to St. Martin's and said he fucking hated it and he uh-huh. thought it was full of wankers and the lecturers didn't know a fucking thing, right? <laughs> right and right. he pursued his own way. But I think in a funny way, it gave him the confidence by rebelling against that yeah. to actually do the wanted to do that's right it's um, ca- like you said it's so, a catalyst of some kind get you going absolutely yep. so yeah. I, mean, I don't want to knock the idea of actually doing those courses mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. but i think it it's just one fragment of what is yeah. important so robin guthrie's been on here and um he uh i love his sound you know i love the effects and that dreamlike quality that he brings to everything he does and he was instrumental, I think, in creating what was originally what was the sort of original sound of Lush. It evolved over time. But did you feel like did you feel too connected or anchored to Robin Guthrie and his effects pedals? You know what I mean? Early on, and that you had to like we love Robin, but he's making Lush sound too much like a Cocteau Twins knockoff that and it's not quite unique enough what were your feelings in working with him um i didn't think that at all at the time Good. yeah not at all i mean i i it was I, you know again i don't really i have a lot of faith in the people that i work with and uh-huh. you know because i'm not someone who sits there and thinks i know how i want this to sound i know and believe me i know i mean moose is much more like that for instance yeah. he has a clear vision of how he thinks that that's so, and emma was very like that mm-hmm. you know whereas i'm very willing to have someone go i don't know maybe you want to try it like this and i go okay you know because i'm very aware that my i don't know i just like the idea of collaboration because yeah. the idea of people bringing ideas to your songs um to and possibly that's why I'm a sub-editor you know I much as I enjoyed writing that book I really love like tweaking other people's work and making Mm -hmm. it just polishing it you know and some people get really offended by that they start niggling over every change Mm -hmm. you're making Mm -hmm. but I sit there and I go listen if you don't want me to fucking help Mm -hmm. I'll fuck off all right but I'm literally working to make it I'm just trying to add something and bring it out and I think that that's what I've always really valued in producers and whoever. Yeah. And Robin was great at that. You know, we'd yeah. come in. I, I just wasn't a very proficient musician. There were things that I was trying to do that just weren't working. And Robin would find a way around that, which is yeah. exactly what a producer is meant to do. And the thing is, is because of the way that Lush wrote, you know, me and Emma wrote separately. We weren't confident as musicians. It was very difficult to get that from the band itself. You know, you ended up writing the whole song on your own. I mean, you mm. took a song like For Love. I wrote the guitar parts. I wrote the backing vocal. Mm. I wrote the bass line. I knew how I had to work out how the drums were going to go because that's how we wrote. And mm. so having a producer that was sensitive and wanted to, you know, kind of complete the songs was like, oh, at last, you know. Yeah, yeah. To have someone to bounce off and and kind of feed into it and, and polish it <clears> up and make it great so i didn't have a single problem it's not like he'd come up with a guitar part and I'd go well that sounds a bit like the cocktail right twins. right no okay. i was like well yeah. you're in the fucking cocktail twins that's what yeah. he's here for yes, right? yes. <laughs> yeah 
I just think he's great, and his ears are special. He when he was on, we talked about you guys a little bit, and John Fryer was on here a little while ago too, and we talked we talked about you guys as well. What was John's? I can't remember from the book. What was how was John involved in your sound? Uh, so John was, I think he was kind of you know pretty much the kind of house guy at 4AD. That's right. You know, yeah. so yeah, that's I it. think he did a lot of his name is alive and he worked with a lot of bands. So when we signed to 4AD, it was it was really because we were very rough and raw. So we got sent in with John Fryer to record what were ostensibly demos. They were really mm -hmm. going to be demos to sort of mm -hmm. decide whether 4AD really wanted to sign us. And because we did the first three and Ivo really liked them just as they were, mm -hmm. and he felt that John had really captured something, we did another three. And then that just got put out as a mini album. Right. And I think, uh, you know, my memories are, I think we were so cowed, or I was. And I remember going into the studio and, you know, almost just petrified of, of having to play something that was actually going to be recorded in front of someone who had worked with all these other bands. I just thought this is so embarrassing. He's just <laughs> going to think I'm so appalling. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then there was a point where he just, he was kind of mixing the vocals and he just played them through the speakers. And, and I was like, oh, fucking hell, that actually sounds quite good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it was kind of a revelation to you know, and I and he there wasn't like huge loads of studio trickery. He did yeah. bring out a performance, yeah, you know, and that's so much of that role of a producer is that mm -hmm. kind of slight babysitting and coaxing yeah. and yeah. and and giving you the ability to perform actually at your best. Yeah. So he was and and actually because he'd had so much experience of working with so many different bands on Four AD. You know, he was very kind of matter of fact about it. He didn't make a great big fuss. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just, yeah, I'll do it again. Uh -huh. I can do better than that, you know. So, and it was, it just took that's all great. the terror out of it, really. Yeah, that's uh, great. Um, I, one, I was reading a quote from Emma, I think it was, about it was intentional to have the guitars more up front and the vocals kind of more almost hidden. And I wondered if that was a byproduct of you not feeling super confident about being a singer or a front woman or your voice. And what's it, if that's, so that's question number one, but then question number two is by the time love life comes around, there are less effects going on. And it feels like your voice is more up in the front, in the forefront. So number one, am I right about the first part? And number two, was this a, how did you feel when love life comes out and your voice is, more powerful and more up in the mix and clearer, let behind less effects. I mean, so you're right on the first one. You know, I think it wasn't even, it's not like I was deliberately singing quietly. That's how okay. quietly I sang. Sure. <laughs> but it could have been and mixed higher, but it wasn't. And it was, it's more almost like an accent to the overall ethereal sound in some ways. For sure. And I think, you know, one of the things that we were quite good at is we did kind of, you know, I I can remember writing songs with very specifically with everybody's limitations and and strengths in mind. You know, a lot of my early songs have got 
you know, they start with the drums. Chris was the only one who could really play well in the band at the beginning. And I would write songs that focused on that, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we just acknowledge that the vocals, it was never, you know, I wasn't going to get out there and be like Bjork or something, you know, there's <laughs> no point in pretending. Right. So you make the vocals part of the music and yeah. the harmonies and, and the way that the vocal sometimes goes against the chords you know i've had lots of people who have had to learn lush songs and they go i don't think that's the right note on the bass mm. and i'm like no trust me it is <laughs> there's a lot of kind of notes right. that almost only go because mm -hmm. they're almost making up a chord of their own yeah. um mm -hmm. and so that i that was very deliberate there was there wasn't it wasn't like as i got more confident we got mm. we were like yeah you can put the vocals up now uh -huh, no uh -huh. that like a song like deluxe will always be mixed that way because yeah. that however confident i got that's okay. how it's meant to sound right. by the time we got to love life i mean pete bartlett produced it he was our front of house sound man by then we had toured i mean years and so many yeah. dates in every year i mean yeah. I, I think i had a conversation with justin where he said yeah like god we played like about 100 gigs with elastica in one year and i was like okay well we played about 150 so <laughs> right. you know right. what i mean and yeah so by the time we got to record love life i think i mean the zeitgeist had changed certainly in britain it was very much that brit pop sound and so you know that kind of more i guess commercial sound i would call it mm -hmm. um was more in and there was less patience, actually, for anything too noodly and kind of sonically interesting, I would argue. And I think also, I mean, maybe this isn't the best reason for doing something like this, but we've had so many years of the press slagging us off, saying that we were underachievers, that the vocals no. weren't very strong, that we, we didn't really write hits, you know, and everything was framed as a negative that in a way I look at Love Life and I do think it's an album that we we sort of said, do you know what? We can fucking do this, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll just show you that we can do it. And I do think that if the band had carried on after Love Life, we would have gone back. Yeah. Really? Back <laughs> to more of the, the earlier stuff? Definitely, okay. because we got it out of our system. We proved we could do it. And it's, you know, as much as I love a lot of the songs on Love Life, it's not really what interests me that much uh -huh. you know i would have i think i missed some of the layering and the sh shimmering and all of that and that's yeah. interesting i actually prefer the earlier stuff too um just because i love that sound and uh, you mentioned Britpop. i want to i want to read something from your book first of all sonia from echo belly was on here recently and okay. uh, she had similar thoughts about Britpop and uh and I, similar, like similarly to you, grew up uh, not being a rock star wasn't always in the plan. It just worked out, and her being great at it and cute and a great singer and a good songwriter and all this kind of stuff. But she had similar thoughts about Britpop because she felt like she got kind of they got um, kind of sucked into a movement, and that when the movement moved on, the they were left with nothing. Oh, you're a part of Britpop, so you're over. You don't have anything more to say and we're on to the new thing and that was hurtful for them so i wanted to read the at the end of chapter 53 
in your book, it says the female-led Britpop band sold a negligible fraction of what the successful bloke bands did. Sure, the girls got a fair bit of attention, but the blokes who ruled the but the blokes who ruled the roost they ruled the roost. I'm now a ladette. I thought this was interesting. A subcategory of lad trying to fit in with and be fancied by the boys. My drinking pints and swearing and interest in football are no longer things I do purely for my own enjoyment. They've both been fetishized as attributes for ideal girlfriend material. Uh, lads, why go out with a high-maintenance prom queen who makes you mind your language when you can have a bird who doesn't mind you getting pissed while watching the footy football? And you get the shagger after. I'm supposed to be flattered that by normal that my normal behavior is now framed as a male fantasy, as if that's the peak of any woman's dreams and achievement. I thought that was so interesting that you wrote that because it's true. You're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you, um, by being who you are, which is a fun hang, interested in the sports, can drink a pint with the guys or whatever. This fetishization of, oh, guys, she's great because she's going to be less maintenance than the one who wants to put on the dress and all the makeup and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, I'm not, I'm no, I'm not here to be your fantasy. I'm not trying to fit into some, something that makes it easier for you to shag me. I'm just being me and you've put me in this box. You know what I mean? I thought that was so fascinating. You're laughing. (laughs) I mean, I, there are reasons there are several reasons why i i kind of you know found Britpop very tiresome one of them was that i was approaching 30 and you know you just get a bit older and wiser yeah. it's also the thing i refer to later that you know having been in a band from you know several years before that i mean as you're saying when the Britpop kind of bandwagon moved on echo belly were left you know uh-huh you know being chucked on the slag heap because it's uh-huh. like well you're not relevant anymore yeah and i'd already had that with shoegaze and you know Britpop coming like i'd already seen scenes come and go right i find them tiresome most bands do most bands don't like being lumped into a scene yeah, it's sure. it's useful to a point because right. it's you know on the way up it means you get extra attention, you know, hey, you're part of shoegaze. So we're going to like do features on shoegaze and we're going to talk about shoegaze. But the minute, you know, the interest wanes, you get um, jettisoned with the whole scene. And usually it's only like one or two survivors who kind of can can kind of, you know, rise above that. And, you know, and I think the problem I had with Britpop was that it was not like with shoegaze it was yes all right you've got these tropes it's all kind of students with floppy fringes and you're dismissed in a in a certain way but I think I didn't really feel my gender so particularly partly because it was quite you know if anything it was the boys who were quite feminized Mm. in shoegaze Mm. um Mm. and yes you had like women slightly being treated like these kind of sirens or whatever you know it was that was a bit tiresome but at the same time 
there was a lot of room to you know maneuver in that you know you weren't and you certainly weren't treated like that by people who you worked with and who you were in daily contact with you know nobody worked with Liz from the cocktails and thought she was you know beamed down from some Saturn moon or something you know she's a swearing grange mouth Scottish woman with strong opinions and doesn't put up with any fucking shit you know yeah. and everybody who knows her knows that yeah but with Britpop it became this sort of it it that just like the environment of people with any fucking brains at all and knowledge that this is look this is just a construct right mm-hmm. none of these bands are actually like that that seemed to go yeah everyone suddenly acted like they were you know, in a fucking carry-on film and that that was perfectly acceptable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, pinching asses and going when you're Mm -hmm. talking to a woman and, you know, sitting there cackling with a load of blokes pointing at a girl and going, go on, you you shagger, you shagger, Mm -hmm. whatever. I don't know, just Mm -hmm. this behaviour. But I just thought, wow, so so this is actually real then. We're actually doing this, are we? Like... um, and I, I thought it was amazing to me how many people went along with that. I believe and it. I believe I it. I think, yeah, you know, it, it's like, I mean, funny enough, you know, I look at America, I know a lot less about the kind of, you know, the general sort mm-hmm. of what it, and, and America's so vast, it's really difficult to gauge it as one place sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But I thought it was very funny watching that Woodstock 99 thing. Oh, yeah. It kind of reminded me that when I did Lollapalooza, which was a good seven years before that, uh-huh. I can see the direction of travel, right? It hadn't, it was way earlier than that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, I when when Lush played, you know, right before fucking Pearl Jam with the yeah. Red Hot Chili Peppers headlining, I didn't really, you know, there was the odd kind of, you know, guy down the front who would make some kind of weird cunnilingus sort of uh-huh. gesture or whatever, uh-huh. but you could just tell them to fuck off and everybody right. would laugh. Right. I didn't have hordes of blokes going, you know, fuck you, bitch, and get your fucking yeah. tits out or something. Yeah. Um, and, but it was, you could see it was going to start going that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yep. I, I think that kind of jock mentality, mm-hmm. you know, crept in. I mean, you know, Britpop now seems like an innocent time. I mean, I can mm-hmm. remember going to see Beck about, I don't know, probably around 99 or something. And the inter- and this was in Britain. The audience was just hurling bottles and really just, yeah, just big for a laugh, you know, yeah. like it was like gang just people who aren't interested in music you know Uh, they're out to fucking get drunk of all people it was insane i can understand if this was like a rock show but it's not going to be a rock show and it it just got everywhere it was an attitude so i actually think you know i i I have to be careful when I slag off Britpop because I absolutely understand. If I'd have been like 17 years old and going uh-huh. to see bands, I would have fucking loved it, right? Yeah. On the surface, it looked great. It was all, you know, androgynous and there were lots of women and, you know, it had attitude and it had a kind of, you know, fuck yeah sort of, you know, mm-hmm. it was an up thing, you know, yeah. and that's really yeah. good fun. But yeah. I think that it masked a lot of 
bad behavior and it also encouraged it which then i think very soon spiraled out of control and i think if you talk to most of those Britpop bands they will all say the same thing i think you're right i think you're right yeah it seems that way okay speaking of Lollapalooza, that's the other best part of your book or most interesting i think part of the book is uh your experience on that tour the i didn't realize until reading the book that lady killers was written about anthony kiedis but it makes sense I didn't know that. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's one verse. One verse yes. is about him. <laughs> and then after I got, I was doing some. And apparently, the third verse is about Matt Sharp, who was in. Weezer. Oh fucking hell! <laughs> right? I didn't know any of this. I've just been listening to that song for thirty years. <laughs> oh, do you know what? I I do feel bad about about people being named because <clears throat> you know. It, it's I was oh how do I dig myself out of this oh you well know, is, I mean they're not like kind of abusive people they weren't horrible horrible people it's not like it's a me too moment and I was yeah, like you sure. know revealing something terrible it's a trope you know of sure. what kind of you know actually what some very nice people can act like and think that it's fine you know and that's really what I was having a dig at rather than the individuals. You know, I hate kind of like hanging people out to dry because I do actually think it's about lots of people act like that, you know, yes, but yes. it did strike me. I think I I don't think I'd had it that nakedly as I'd had it from before I was in a band. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it surprised me that I could actually be on a tour with people. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, fucking hell. So this is still going to happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, what the fuck? And and it stood out because actually most people really weren't like that. Uh-huh. You know, it uh-huh. stood out because it was, you know, to me, very strange behavior and incredibly tiresome as well, because they are people sure. that, um, you know, I think that I guess it is the definition of sexism to me is that, listen, I, I just want to have a conversation. I just want to have a nice time or hang out or even if we fucking screw each other, whatever, yeah, yeah. right? You don't have to treat me like I'm a fucking alien breed yeah. that has to have a whole different set of rules, right, okay? Right. You can just talk to me normally, please. Yeah. And then people who just do not seem to be able to do that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I don't know why that is personally. I don't know. I think, are you playing some sort of game? Is is 
does this have to be framed in a way that you're winning something? Mm. I don't mm-hmm. really understand, but it's really fucking boring. I and actually don't yeah. do it, please. I bet. Well, and I mean, how many thousands of millions of songs are there are there written and sung by men about trying to get with a girl or whatever? And how now here is a woman singing from her perspective. And the surprising thing is, based on verses two and three, you see right through these guys. You These guys have some kind of persona or an image or a Lothario kind of whatever moves they put on, whatever you know things they do, acts they go through to entice women or pick up on women or attract women. You guys see right through it. They don't know that. And it, singing a song from a woman's point of view about that behavior, there's not as many of those. So you shouldn't apologize. The dudes aren't there out there apologizing for this kind of stuff. But you went there, and there's not a lot of them. You know, I I thought it was kind of revelatory. I thought that was really amazing. I mean, I, I got a lot of shit for writing that song. I did get a lot of men going, "Oh my god, we're just trying to, you know, you're shooting men down where we're. It's just as difficult for us. We're Live just playing them. the the dating game or whatever. And you know, and to just to not give myself that much credit i didn't see uh, right through it from right. the beginning okay. right if i had i would have just walked away yeah. it took me a while and then it, there was a dawning kind of oh oh my god is this what's going on here yeah. like you know yeah and i i think that's actually the experience of um i mean i would have thought that a lot of women have that experience I'm, where you of think course. um you know, but I, I mean, in other respects, I mean, there's there's clearly things that work because otherwise all these dating gurus, <laughs> what do you call it, those insane blokes who tell you how to uh-huh. fuck women by acting like a dickhead. I mean, I guess, you know. It's big business in that. Um, well, and you, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, your grandma about um, sexual... <laughs> What's the word when you have a lot of sex? You're very uh, promiscuous. promiscuous. Yes, geez, losing my my words. Um, you are you talk very uh, uh, candidly in the book about your own promiscuousness during this time. And I I had a I wanted to ask about some of the rules of. Uh, be, and I'm not trying to be salacious here, but it, when I was reading your book, and I was it reminded me. <laughs> So there's this line, there's this part in Pretty Woman. Remember the movie Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts? And she doesn't want to kiss Richard Gere on the mouth because that's too personal. And it's just meant to be a sexual, you know, uh, exchange. It's not supposed to get personal with kissing. And I thought when when rock stars have these sexual experiences, whether with groupies or with other rock stars, do they lay down similar rules? Like, we're not going to kiss because that's too personal, but we are going to screw each other because that's really ultimately what we're here for. Is this a weird question? I'm not trying to get into the... I hope that's okay. I'm just no, wondering it's, it's what the politics of, of rock it's actually sex weirdly, are. It's actually weirdly okay. sweet. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'm really not trying to be a gross boy or kinky or anything. I really was I'm wondering just, what the, the rules were. <laughs> I mean... The rules, if there are any, 
that that certainly is not okay. <laughs> it's not how it works okay <laughs> i don't know if you go back to the hotel and you make out for a while and it starts out with foreplay or if you just like get right down to it because let's just we're rock stars we don't need to mess around let's just get I right down to it i've seen i've seen and experienced all variations of how those on tour romances happen you know some yeah. of them are one night stands some of them are romances that actually are very sweet. You know, uh -huh. they grow and they develop. I think that, you know, quite often, though, it's it's a bit like a holiday romance. Okay. There are, you know, and the complications are usually that most of the people involved probably have a partner back mm. home. Right? <laughs> well, that's kind of Not what always. fed into my question, too. Like, I... Not I always. can fool around, but I can't make out. I can't kiss anybody because I save that for my wife or whatever. Well, I, I don't think the kissing is the problem. Okay. Really, well, I know. You know. I, I'm um, just being dumb. Yeah. But but you know, it. I mean, look, going on a tour is is it's exciting. I mean, you know, when you're young, you know. I mean, I talk about inevitable you know you throw a bunch of young people mm -hmm. and a shitload of adrenaline and a whole load of fucking downtime mm -hmm. you know and and stuff kind of just happens it's not yeah. that big a deal I mean I think what I've seen you know there are people who are incredibly predatory and no doubt abuse that power you know more especially less so probably with people that they're actually on tour with and more so with you know people in the audience mm -hmm. who you know there is a power imbalance there and i've mm -hmm. seen quite shocking things you mm -hmm. know and the treatment of girls in particular in sure. those environments um i think that always was i mean and the funny thing was i kind of always had myself down as being quite promiscuous but looking back i wonder if i really was you know i think maybe other women were just better at masking that mm. <laughs> maybe and keeping it quiet yeah and also you know girls maybe i was more frank about it because i am quite honestly when if i did have a romance on a tour and the guy started as far as i was concerned acting like a fucking prick uh -huh. i just think okay well fuck you i'll just find someone else it doesn't yeah. bother me right um I mean, it pisses me off, but it's not mm -hmm. going to break my heart. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that um, a lot of other women I knew were maybe, I don't know if they really were emotional about it or whether they felt that they had to be to not get called a slut, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, funny enough, Americans are completely different. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, touring with a band like Babes in Toyland, they don't give a fuck. Right. Right. <laughs> but, you know, like, right. Like, you know, English girls who are kind of a bit more conscious of like not wanting to be bad mouthed or being uh -huh. cast in a certain light. I think and now I look back and I think, oh, you know, when I now that I know loads of shit that I didn't know then, I think, oh fucking hell. So <laughs> So it wasn't just me, all right. Right. Um, right. Okay. I just wondered what the politics of all, of all of that, those kind of like, you know, exchanges were, if they were anything, or if it was just, you know, like, like normal people. Oh, we were feeling it. Let's go do it. Um, okay. Last bit. The book, um, like, are, do you still talk to Emma at all? Because in the book, it sounds like a rough rocky relationship yeah i mean it's tricky because i think since the reunion 
I haven't um I haven't spoken to Emma. We had the odd email kind of, you know, I mean literally just business, you know, mm-hmm. polite but but you know, that's it. Um and then I think since the book I haven't heard anything. And I know that mm-hmm. she hates the book, so you know what the fuck I, I wondered. Do, you know? um, I wondered. And I I I kind of think, you know, but I would argue, I mean, I don't think she recognized what I wrote in the book. And you can you can look at that in different ways. It did make me think, I mean, there was a bit of me that thought, fuck me, really? Do you not recognize any of this? Yeah. I mean, come on, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And then I just thought, well, if you don't recognize any of it, I I just think wow, we must have just had two completely different experiences then. Yeah. So, but, and I can't speak for her from my own perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, I've known Emma since I was 14. And there's a trickiness to growing up with people that you knew when you were very young. You know, most people who left school, they don't really know their old school mates. You know, lots of people move on. And when you're stuck with that person because you're actually working together, not just because you like each other, but mm-hmm. because you have to be together. Yeah, yeah. It's quite difficult to kind of grow into your own space. That relationship that you had at 14 is just with you the whole fucking time. Yeah. Right? It's the same as family, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that we ended up really not communicating very well at all and I would blame both of us for that Mm -hmm. and I would blame myself in that I just I was probably scared of rocking the boat too much so I think I buried a lot of the things that really pissed me off Mm -hmm. um and just thought that I could navigate around them and actually it's impossible to do that it's probably a much better policy to just say what's on your mind and then deal with the repercussions yeah um but no she doesn't speak to me I mean I frame it that way I'm always conscious that I say well she doesn't speak to me because if I mean I'll be honest if I bumped into Emma I'd speak to her she may Uh blank me but I do that you know and I've had someone I've had someone on social media going oh my god I can't believe Mickey wrote in her book that you know even though they don't speak she she still kind of misses her in some mm, way. Mm. And I was like, well, it's true. You know, Emma mm-hmm. was a massive part of my life for a lot sure. of those years. And yeah. actually, when I sit here talking to you about what happened on Lollapalooza and what happened on whatever tour, yeah. you know, there are gaps in my memory that Emma could fill. And that if right. we were sitting here together talking, we'd be laughing again. Oh, my God, do you not remember this bit? And then yeah. you'd be in hysterics over it because it's a shared memory. And memories are, you know, mm-hmm. when they're shared with someone who was there, they come to life, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so that's yeah. the bit that I miss. But okay. I don't, you know, at the end of the day, we we fell out. She's angry with me. Listen, she's got a record out. I really yeah. hope she has a fucking great time with it. I'm really pleased she's singing on, on it herself because yeah. when she did sing thing, she kind of, I guess i mean she was doing the backing vocals and they were kind of twinned vocals but i think it's good for her that she's done a solo record i want to sound patronizing no that's that's why i asked she's got a new album coming out that's good for her absolutely you know and and you know i think that really as much as i i fucking loved being in lush and we made great Uh music but there was a point i think where 
our personalities just were too much yeah. of a clash. There was just, you know, unless we got a fucking therapist in and had yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> like Metallica. I do. Yeah, it it, uh, it felt that way. It felt like sort of a toxic relationship. And I wondered if you had to clear what you wrote with her first or had gave her the opportunity to look it over. It, the fact that you didn't or it didn't work out that way, that's interesting, too, because then this is just your unfiltered, uncensored memories of, of the relationship because it sounded tough. Um, I'm sure it goes both ways, but it was uh, it sounds like it would have been difficult to work with her at, at certain times. And I don't want to trash talk her because she's got her story, too. Oh, I mean, I'm sure that she could tell you a hundred times when I was a fucking nightmare. Yeah, right? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can be fucking irritating, yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> right. And, you know, I'm sure it was no picnic on her side either, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think, mm, you know, I think, what what do I think? You know, I I kind of felt when I was writing the book that, you know, not least over that those kind of events, it would be great to have Emma here to ask, you know, mm -hmm. did, did this happen? Can you remember anything else about this yeah, or whatever? Yeah. But at the same time, I thought if I'm going to write a book that is really honestly about my experience, it's kind of good to not have her over my shoulder. Because mm -hmm. I did always feel, rightly or wrongly, she can disagree. But I always felt that I, I kind of worked quite hard to please Emma. Yeah. But there was a lot in me that placated her. Mm -hmm. And actually if you're going to write an honest account of an autobiography that becomes very difficult you know if you've got that person that you're you don't want to upset you know mm -hmm. and I did send her the book before it came out as a draft um and I was also very careful you know there were things that I'd written about that I thought mm, I'll take that out because it's maybe it's a bit private I was second guessing maybe yeah. she would have loved it I yeah. couldn't tell so in the end I had to just go with my instincts and take certain things out but um I, I really I didn't really send her the book for her to approve or disapprove uh -huh. I kind of sent it as a you know this is what's in it you yeah. know yeah. just so you know yeah what is going to be out there right. and um you know she she I know that she had been she did have a lawyer who she was mm. talking to. So I mean, I'm assuming that if there was anything in there that she thought was, you mm -hmm. know, absolutely untrue or too contentious, she would have utilized mm -hmm. that because yeah. she could have done. So okay. um, I guess, but I did send it to her as a courtesy yeah. and I didn't have okay. to. I'm yeah. not trying to big myself up here. No, no, but no, I did it, put myself, I, I put myself right in move. her shoes and I did yeah. think, well, if Emma was writing a book about me, I'd kind of want to know what's in it at least. Definitely. You know, yeah. So, yeah. I think you did the right thing. Well, uh, Mickey, thank you for allowing me to force myself on you to do this interview because I've always loved Lush and I love your book and uh, I just desperately wanted to talk to you about it and spread the word. And I hope whoever hears this, thankfully a few thousand people are going to do it, that they take the effort to go find the book and get it on import or whatever because it's worth it. It's one of the best I've ever read. Thank you for yeah, being you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. All right, there you have it, Mickey Berenyi. Pretty awesome, right? There's not even a ton of music in this one. You didn't really need it because the conversation and the stories were so good. I want to close it out with a song. This is Love Life off of Lush's second album 
called Split. And this is the one that sort of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. But I think it's I think everything they did was great. I love all of it. Anyway, folks, if you can get your hands on Fingers Crossed, you will not regret it. It is such an amazing piece of work. She's an incredible writer. She's incredibly honest. Uh, she tells unfiltered stories, which is just what we love. And uh, it's pretty amazing. It is an amazing piece of work. I hope you all can get your hands on it. Now, next week, we are going full Yacht Rock. We couldn't be going, we couldn't be down a further end of the spectrum than where we are this week. Next week, it is full on Yacht Rock. That's who our guest is next week. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Um, we have a lot of bonus material in the can. Um, it's up to Yan whether he's got the bandwidth to put it out. There might be something coming later this week. We don't know. We'll see. But uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear it. There's a book club. There's a, a deep dive. There's some promo modes. Everything's on the. Everything's coming up. There's a lot going on right now. Uh, you guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on X or whatever it is at the Hustle Pod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.